Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 11, 1 through 4, and this is found on page 8 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take the one in front of you as a gift from us. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you came this morning as we continue looking at the book of Genesis together. And as we uh, prepare to look more closely at this passage of Scripture we just heard read, I want to start by praying. And one of the reasons we, we do that is because we recognize God has spoken to us in His Word, but we want Him to continue to speak to us and for us to be able to understand it, apply it, put it into practice in our life. We know that we need His help to do that. And so I want to pray now uh, that as we study this passage together, look at it more closely, that His Spirit would be at work uh, in this room, in our lives, even now, as we look at the words that he has spoken to us long ago. So let's do that. Father in heaven, thank you that you speak to us, that you have spoken to us, and we pray that this morning as we look at these words of Genesis chapter 11, that you would speak afresh to each of us, that your spirit would help us to understand and apply uh, this word in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think one of the most dangerous things that I own in my life is this thing right here. And, and it might not be for the reasons that you would think, though, right? Because what, what, what makes this thing so dangerous is, uh, you know, a number of things. But you, so maybe your mind went to, well, maybe it's, it's, it's dangerous morally, right? This is, you know, a, a portal to all kinds of uh, maybe pornography or content like that on the Internet, and that's what makes it dangerous. And that, that's true. That's a danger of this. Um, or, or maybe you went kind of the distraction route in your mind. Oh, what makes a, this so dangerous is, is the distraction that it keeps our focus from other people or from our relationships, that this is, provides distraction, which is also true. Um, or, or maybe you think about the like, physical health piece, like you know, there's all these radio waves and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. I don't know what those are doing to us. They're zipping through us all the time. Um, or the blue light from the screen keeping us awake uh, at night, right? So maybe there's health things that make this dangerous. But none of those are what I have in mind. And, and actually, don't misunderstand, this is an incredible tool that I, I love. It helps so much, right? If I need maps, directions, figure out how long it's going to take to get somewhere, plan a trip, FaceTime for our family to keep in touch with our, the grandparents in St. Louis is amazing. Always having a camera to capture moments in our family or on a walk or whatever is great. But here's the danger, that this so easily becomes a monument to and a constant temptation to self-sufficiency. That, that it provides an illusion that I'm completely equipped to navigate any problem and fulfill any desire on my own for anything that I could want or need, right? There's, there's an app for that. So it's like, if I need a ride... I can pull up Uber. I was thinking about that earlier this week because uh, I had uh, a car, was in the dealership for some recall work, and I was like, oh, I need to get to work. 
And I think in the past that would have stressed me out more to like try to make sure I coordinated that with a friend, which ended up working. But I thought, oh, if I can't get the friend to take me, I'll just do Uber. It's so easy just to do it like that. If I'm bored, YouTube, Netflix, or just a tap away, hungry, DoorDash will deliver the food, right, to your house. And when I have this, I, I also all too easily believe that, that a good enough life is within my grasp to navigate the world without God. Now again, I wouldn't necessarily say this out loud too often, but yet subtly how, that's how I begin to live, that it's easy to reach for this rather than for this. It's easier to look down than to look up. It's astounding the ways the things that we as people make can make us feel like we don't need God. And and think about this, technological innovation at its core is driven by human desire to to mitigate pain, to, to maximize pleasure, and it's really truly amazing what we as human beings have accomplished and developed in our, in our quest to make the world a better place. And that's not a bad thing. We all long for the Garden of Eden. We long to get back into this place that we lost. We want to be a people who make the world a better place. We want to encourage other people to make the world a better place. But here's the problem. Far too often, we try to create Eden, but without God. We want God's world without God. In our society, many people were trying to raise the, the perfect kids or, or build a successful career, but without God. People attempt to achieve the American dream or the good life without any mention of God. I wonder if you, if you found yourself doing that, trying to create Eden without God. As a pastor, I know I have done that. And often in subtle ways find myself doing that, trying to build the life that is perfect but without God as a part of it. We want to recreate Eden without God, and yet it seems no matter what we create, no matter how advanced a world we develop, given enough time, we find that it leaves us undone. And a recent article in National Geographic was looking at sort of the kind of the history of Silicon Valley and, and was pointing out this, this reality. The, the author writes, technology rules the future, but there's also a grudging acknowledgement that sometimes in the pursuit of making things better and more efficient, you may be hurting people along the way. Why is this the case? Well, and this is our, our big takeaway from the passage this morning, that you can't have Eden without God. You can't have Eden without God. This morning as we continue in our study of the book of Genesis together, we're going to see why self-sufficiency is so dangerous to us. And we're going to see what happens when we try to be great without God. And what happens when we try to be great without Him, when we try to build Eden without God. And the first thing that we see is that we keep building the tower and I want you to look back again. We'll have the verse on the screen, or if you want to pull up in your, your pew Bible uh, and look at these passages, I, I'd love for you to look at them with me. And in chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, I want you to notice two things as we look at it more carefully here. Notice first that they settle, that they, they move and then they come to a place and they settle there. And also notice too the reason that the text gives for the, why they're building the city and the tower. So notice those two things, okay? So take a look again here, beginning in verse 2. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us 
echoes to Genesis 1, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They're using technology to create a, a tool, the brick. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So first, they, they move from the east. So they're moving from the east. They're continuing to go eastward. And in Genesis, eastward movement is, is always a, a symbol, a sign, a movement away from God's presence and blessing. So when you see someone moving east in the book of Genesis, it's a, it's a tip-off that something bad is about to happen. All right, so Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east. Cain, after he murders his brother Abel, settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Later on, we're going to encounter a character in the story named Abraham and his nephew Lot. When his nephew Lot splits from Abram, he goes to the east and ends up in the land of Sodom. The author so already is tipping us off that something not good is about to happen they migrated from the east. And the author points out that they settled. Now, this fact that they settled there on this plain is something that's sort of easy, I think, for us just to, to quickly skip over. It's just part of the, the setting of the story. The author's just setting up the account. But it stands in direct contrast to what God had commanded his people to do in Genesis chapter 1. For them to multiply, be fruitful, and to fill the earth, to spread out. And then again in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood with Noah and his family, we looked at that story last week, they were again given this command to multiply and fill the earth. But they get to a certain point and they stop, they settle. They're no longer filling. Now, now the settling, even the city building, in and of themselves aren't problematic, but it's the motivation it's the problem. So instead of creating to, to love God and others, they create to make a name for themselves. And do you hear the echoes of the creation account in their language? God in Genesis chapter 1 says, let us make man in our own image, that language of let us. But here they say, let us make a city for ourselves. Let us make a great name for us, for ourselves. And this is our sort of perpetual and fundamental problem. We try, they try, to build Eden without God. In fact, in the four verses that we heard read, God isn't mentioned at all. Never even named. And again, this story may sound ridiculous, it might sound far-fetched, might seem mythological to us as modern readers, if it didn't describe us so very well. This human project of constantly trying to build Eden without God. We keep building the tower. We want power and control and success and security. All of us, we want to go home. We have this deeply ingrained memory of Eden. And that's not a bad thing. The problem is that we keep trying to reject God. You see, we're all born asking the question, how can I be happy without God? It's just our default setting right from day one, asking the question, how can I be happy without God? 
Which brings us to the next thing that we see in the text. It's also here in the first four verses, is that we want our name, not God's. We want our name, not God's. And again, this is at the heart of what is wrong in the passage and what's wrong with with me. We want the credit. We want our name to be great. And, And I feel that move to want to have our name, my name be great all the time. I was reminded of it acutely a few months ago, back in February, I was at a gathering of pastors from around the country here in Kansas City, other churches that do pastoral residency programs like we do here, and we had gathered, and one of the pastors was telling me about a book that they were writing. I was like, oh, tell me about this book. And she was walking through the, the book, and she said, we're going to call it Church for Monday, which was the title of a sermon series we did here at Christ Community in January. Now, you would think my first thought should have been, wow, this is amazing. Like these ideas are spreading, like they're gaining traction. People all over the country are starting to, to think in these terms. That's awesome. But the, my, my first thought in that moment, I didn't say this, I was like, wait, like that's, that's our thing. Like that was our name. We came up with that. You can't call your book that. Because it just revealed to me that the subtlety of, I want my name to be great. Our name, this Christ community's name to be great. That's the sin underneath all the other sins in this passage. We want the credit. We want our name to be great. I, I see it in our kids, even as young as they are, this competition between them. And, you know, one of them will come running in and say, hey, come see this thing I built, this magnetile tower or this art project I did. And then the other, one of the other ones, often the older one, comes and says, well, but look at what I did. Mine's even better. They want to make a name for themselves. We, we don't want to be dependent. We don't want to need God. We don't want to need others. We want to be enough on our own. Gosh, I feel that myself. I, don't, I hate asking for help. I want to be enough on my own. We want the world without the God who made it. We want the kingdom without the king. We want his justice, his dignity, his equity, his love, but we don't want to have to deal with him. We want to decide what's best and have it all work out. Again, I see this in my own life, this deep desire to have some little portion or corner of my life that is just mine. Uh, C.S. Lewis once described it as sort of like we treat our relationship with God sort of like paying taxes. It's like we, we want to give him the, the bare minimum of what is acceptable to him and then hope that we still have enough left to, to live on after we've paid the tax. We want Eden without God. We want his name. We want our name, not his. But the thing is, there is no Eden without him. There is no Eden without him. In fact, if you can do that thought experiment of thinking forward to the new heavens, the new earth, when all is set right, and if you can imagine being happy in that place without God, you can imagine the beauty and joy of that place and sort of say like, oh yeah, I guess if God's there, it's fine, or if not, it's not. Then what you realize, what you've subtly done, is that I don't really want God, I just want his stuff. You don't want his name, his glory. You want yours. And I'm sober by this because so often I do live my life as an attempt to live happily ever after without God. 
so easy to move through my day without, without him until I feel overwhelmed or confused or sad. And, and then I go to, back to him just sort of long enough to feel good again so then I can go back to building my own tower, building my own name. And because we keep building the tower, because we prefer our name to God's, we need God to come down again. We need him to come down again. We, we need him to come down again. And that's what happens in the story is that God comes down. You, you see, in verse 4, they say, we're going to make this great city and this tower that stretches the heavens. That's what we're, we are going to do for our sake. And then you see God's response in verse 5. This is the first time God comes into the story and, he, and, he, and is mentioned. And he comes down. He has to stoop. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, I love the irony here. The author is being so intentional. They are going to build this tower that reaches to the heavens. And that God, though, has to come down to even see it. It's so tiny, so puny. We're going to make our name great. We're going to build this massive tower. And when God hears about what's going on, he has to get, almost like he has to get down on his hands and knees. It's almost like he hears there's this tower and he starts looking around. Where is it? Is, is that it? Is that? I, and it's like he's kind of got to get down here to even see this tiny thing that they've built. It's so small by comparison to who he is. That's it down there? Okay. And the text moves from, hey, look what we've done to God saying and grieving, look what they've done. Right? They can ignore him, but he is not going to ignore them. And again, even this is another moment in the book of Genesis where even in God's people, even in the people that he's created, rebelling against him, he intervenes to prevent them from creating even more suffering and evil and pain for themselves in the good world that he's made. But how does he do this? Well, by confusing their language, verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they ha- all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. You can almost hear the echoes back to Genesis 6 that the world is going to become even more evil again. And then nothing they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And the result is that the city building is stopped in that moment, that particular city, and it's left in sort of these undone ruins. But also notice, and you're going to see this in the next verse, but I want you to just have this lens on before we read it. Notice what is repeated twice in this next section of verses. They settled, they stopped in this mission of filling the earth, but as a result of God's intervening, his plan of filling the earth goes forward despite them. So verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And then again, and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God continues to push his plan, his mission forward of filling and blessing the earth even despite the rebellion. And even though they live, leave off building this city, Babel becomes a key theme in the Bible. You could have t- 
translated as Babylon. It's where the name Babylon comes from. And Babylon becomes a type. It is a particular historical city, an empire, but Babylon in the scriptures becomes the symbol of a world in rebellion against God. Babel and Babylon are symbolic of the pride of human autonomy and self-reliance and rejection of God, the building of Eden without him. Babylon is where God's people are sent into exile. It's where God's enemies reside. Assyria, Babylon, Rome is in the New Testament. Uh, Rome is sometimes referred to as Babylon. It's the same idea, this idea of the city in rebellion against God, the world in rebellion against God. At the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, again, this idea of, of Babylon comes up again as a picture of a world opposed to God. And Babylon, though, doesn't just live back here in Bible times. It doesn't just live somewhere in the future in Revelation, sometime yet to come in the future. No, Babylon lives here and now in us and in our city as well. So what do we do about that? Well, first, we need to identify the towers that we're building. Because there's a little Babel that's being built in each of us. There is a Babylon that's being built in our city. And most of the time we we don't see them though because we don't see Babylon because we're comfortable with Babylon. We're comfortable with it. Why? Because Babylon is, is what's normal. So what are the towers that you're building? Um, your your kids can be a tower looking to find fulfillment and meaning in them. Uh, Your work or your school or your performance on a team or in athletics can be a tower, a a means to making your name great, of building your reputation. Increasingly, I'm convicted of this in my own life, but safety, security, homogeneity, these are things that can make, we make towers out of, towers that anchor us down and, and keep us from spreading the gospel. Right? Towers that, that insulate us from hurting people and hurting parts of our city. You know, I, I've come to realize that I have very few real meaningful relationships with people outside of my own sort of socioeconomic and ethnic group. So, I mean, translation, I, I hang out with a lot of white middle to upper middle class people. Those are my people I went to college with, it's who I go to church with, it's who lives in my neighborhood. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just easy because that's what's safe. It's what's comfortable. It's what's known. Another big cultural tower is achievement and activities, especially in the lives of kids. Extracurricular activities that, that crowd out time for family and rest and engagement in the life of the church, of other believers. And so I mean that Kansas City, that America in ways are a kind of, of babble. And when we begin to push back against that reality, it pushes back hard. This is why we need to be regularly engaged in God's word in a community of faith who can help us see our blind spots, to see our idols, to see the towers that we're building. And that the work of doing this identifying of the towers that we're building in our own life, it's, it's, it's hard. And it's really hard if we begin to look at the ways that our, our city is divided or the ways that achievement or success have, have led us to, to spend beyond our means or to over-program ourselves and our families. And turning away from those things is really hard. 
it's painful. It's easy to want to shy away from them, to just ignore them. But don't. I mean, that's what Babylon wants you to do, to stay comfortable, to, to don't, look, don't look for the cracks, don't look for what's broken. But as Christians, we have a different perspective. I love how a uh, professor of art at Covenant College, Dr. Elisa Yukiko, puts this. She writes, for after all, if Jesus is coming back to make all the sad things untrue, then the more sad things we know, the bigger Jesus must be to undo them. The cracks are already there. Calling out the brokenness does not diminish Jesus' power. It magnifies it. I love that. What a different approach. You see, that's actually the difference between the gospel and religion. Right? Religious people don't repent. They are building a tower of their own performance. And any crack in that performance is a deadly threat to the very foundation of their lives. But in the gospel, Christians know that they are broken. They know that there are cracks. And and the more towers that they discover in their own lives, the more cracks that they see in their own hearts, they're they're not moments uh, of of fear and and despair, but they're, they're moments of seeing God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness coming in. So identify the towers that you're building And then second, welcome God into those spaces. When you find those places where you're making your own name great, where you're living for your own glory, counteract them by asking God to come into those spaces to help you to rely on him in those spots. And I think there are two classic Christian uh, disciplines or practices that can really help in this area that help us undermine this desire, this impulse that's in every single one of us to build our own name, to live for our own glory. And those are the disciplines of secrecy and service. Uh, And secrecy is is not like a keeping secrets, but this idea of doing good for others in such a way that they don't know it was you who did it. To be able to do good, to serve other people, but doing it in such a way that you don't get the credit, you don't get the the glory for it. It's going to be hard, actually, to find ways to do that, but to be creative about that. Look for ways around the house or in your workplace or at school where you can help, where you can do something to serve, where you don't get any of the credit, where no one knows it was you who did it. It's in those moments of, of practicing that that often you realize, I know for me, it's like, oh, that was something really good. I, but I don't, how much I live for the applause, for the praise. Discipline yourself to do those things in secret sometimes. Look for hidden work to do. And then second, to serve. Now, service often can be done in secret, but it doesn't always. But doing service constantly puts you in the practice of making others more important than yourselves. And so it reduces this tendency within our hearts to build our own name. Make it a practice of wherever you go, school, church, work, home, especially home, to ask two questions. What needs to be done and how can I help? What needs to be done and how can I help? Those two questions will just transform 
the spaces that you inhabit. So often we approach serving from the standpoint of what would I like to do and what would be fulfilling to me? And those are, that's not a bad thing to ask those questions. You know, it would be great. And we want to find places of service and contribution in our work and in our volunteering, all those where our passions and joys and interests match up with needs in the world. Yes. But the fundamental question of a servant is not what would I like to do and what would fulfill me, but is what needs to be done and how can I help? What needs to be done and how can I help? Imagine, again, if you were beginning to answer those kinds of questions in your life, one, the work that it would do of taking your focus off of yourself, and two, how it would transform those spaces. I mean, parents, can you imagine if your kids came home from school every day and asked, what needs to be done and how can I help? be incredible, right? If you showed up at your workplace every day, how, what would your boss think? What would your employees think? Your coworkers or classmates, if, if your posture was always one of, well, what needs to be done and how can I help? Even if it's not my area, if it's not my specialty, if it's not my group, but what needs to be done and how can I help? The way up in God's kingdom is down. The path to greatness is the way of the servant. Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve. And he is our example. And in Jesus, God came down again. He comes down in the book of Genesis to the Tower of Babel, but in Jesus, he comes down again, this time not to scatter, but to save. And every other religion in the world will tell you how you can build a tower to get to God. But the story of the Bible, the good news of the gospel, the glorious news of Christianity is not that this is a book of instructions on how you can build a tower to get to God, but how he has come down to get you. You cannot have Eden without him. The only way back to Eden is for him to bring Eden to you, to him to come to you and rescue you. And the story of the Bible is the story of God coming down again, over and over again. And he comes in Jesus. God himself takes on frail humanity, the ultimate smallness and humility. He comes not to a great tower or palace, but to a tiny town of Bethlehem, born as a baby in a barn. The Spirit comes down at Pentecost and the languages that have been divided and scattered in Genesis chapter 11 are suddenly brought back together as the gospel is proclaimed and they hear it in their own languages. The disruption of Genesis 11 is being undone in Acts chapter 2. And the Bible ends with the story not of us ultimately leaving the earth and going away to heaven, but of heaven coming down out of the sky, out of heaven, New Jerusalem coming down to earth, God coming down to meet us, to live with us. The great culmination of Scripture is not us leaving earth behind to live with God, but of him coming down to live with us forever. The book of Revelation says, And behold, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and, they, and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Amen. And until we reach that time, we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look for the coming of his kingdom. Let's pray.
Father, we do. We pray that. We pray as Jesus taught us to pray that your name is holy, not ours. And we ask for your will to be done, not ours. We ask that you would give us our daily bread, the provision. And we thank you that you have given us the ultimate provision of your life to redeem us, to rescue us, to heal the cracks, to tear down the towers, to bring Eden back to us because we left you. And as we celebrate the communion meal this morning, would you in fresh ways nourish us through faith in the gospel. Give us new hope and fresh joy this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.